Welcome to our Portuguese Table Podcast. I'm Maria Lott and these are Green Bean. And I'm Angela Samoz and we're just two chicks dishing about Portuguese food, culture, and what it means to be Portuguese. So grab a glass of vinho or um copo de café and join us as we talk about our favorite foods, reminisce about growing up Portuguese, and interview some of our community's most successful chefs and food writers. So, so sit, sit down, down at our Portuguese, Portuguese table. table. Well, hello, Maria. Welcome oh, uh, back to another one of our episodes, 2020, COVID-19. Yes. <laughs> yeah. but, but no, no, no visuals today. No. Yeah, we um, we have a guest today, uh, Dr. Darlene Souza. Hi, Dr. Souza. Good morning. So we, uh, for our guest today, we do have a... Um, or for our listeners today, we do have a guest. We had hoped to do the video aspect as well, but as you all have probably experienced at home with everybody being at home and Zooming and FaceTiming, the internet is really taxed and, and the video quality just wasn't there. So we opted to do just audio. So sorry about that because, you know, we all prepared ourselves to look beautiful on camera, but... Um, I did. You know, I actually, <laughs> actually curled my hair. Oh my gosh. <laughs> sorry. We'll take a picture. We'll take a picture and then, you know, we can <laughs> Because <laughs> we can let me tell you, I'm not, I'm not curling my hair that much lately. So, oh, I, yeah, I hear it was a special day. <laughs> well, hopefully the, uh, you know, the internet companies will, I don't know, do something to, I, I'm just amazed at the bandwidth. I mean, I understand it's being taxed, but I'm just amazed that it's, it's so bad sometimes, but, but anyway, I don't want to digress, but, uh, so we, it's a really exciting topic for us today because it's something that we kind of touch on. We've touched on in other yes. episodes, yep. Maria, about yeah. some of the frustrations in our community and how people can be. And yep. But it's just us kind of venting a little bit and giving our two cents. And we actually had some listeners that said, you guys should have some episodes dedicated to some of these, you know, social and relationship issues in the community. And it was a great idea. So thank you to, to those who suggested it. The challenge there is that there's so much to unpack. There's oh, no it, way it'll do it. It'll be, it's, it's not <laughs> just a one time only here, folks. I mean, right. the list was, I mean, almost two pages long. Deep, of, yeah. Yeah. Very deep stuff. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. And we'll have a few episodes. On this. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so keep the suggestions coming. If you keep thinking of things, we'll keep adding it to the list and address it as, as much as we can. And so, but to kick it off, uh, we thought a good segue would be, Maria sent, I'm sure everybody has seen the meme that Maria actually sent uh, Dr. Souza and I about how Portuguese moms have been preparing us for this pandemic our entire lives cleaning and cooking and saving everything, which it's, it's hilarious. Um, and so we're going to start there in terms of where, where does it all begin? Um, but before, <laughs> but before we jump in, I just wanted to do a quick introduction to, to Dr. Souza, uh, Dr. Darling Souza of Childmind Northwest. That is her consultancy where she focuses on education, disability, testing, learning, and, um, and therapy as well. She's based in, in Nevada. And Dr. Souza, do you want to just give us a little bit more about your background? We're so happy to have you with us. Welcome. Yes, welcome. Thank you both. I am so happy to be here. This is such, 
such an important topic. And I mean, how timely, right? Now we're all at home and we have the opportunity to discuss what we're living with on a daily basis. Right. (laughs) I grew up in the Central Valley of California and in a typical, you know, agricultural community right there, smack dab near Fresno, very traditional Portuguese community. You know, you grow up and you don't even really need to learn English because doctor's offices speak it, Portuguese and the the banks speak Portuguese. So that kind of really rich upbringing, which I'm very proud of. And I have tried very hard not to forget where I come from. And so I left that area, you know, my family having moved from the eighth wars, my mother's from San Miguel and my father and my sisters are from Terceira. And I left that area and, and went to college. And um, after Obtaining several graduate degrees, I started off in counseling, in court-mandated CPS type of therapy, did a lot of in-home family therapy with really tough cases, and progressed from there because of my uh, daughter, who is now an adult, but still had a a lot of difficulty with school, and there's just a gap between the educational model and the medical model. They don't speak the same language. They don't recognize the same things. And so I thought I need to go back to school and get that licensing as well. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I added on the educational psychologist bit because of that. But meanwhile, while doing all of that, and I've just been so blessed to work internationally too, because my research focus is actually on these cultural aspects of development, family, and cultural psychology. So that's why I was so excited when I learned about this, because that's actually my research area and and what I publish on. So thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, this is amazing. And and the culture aspect is, it'll be interesting to hear too, your perspectives on on other cultures, because sometimes Sometimes it feels like we Portuguese are the only ones that do these things. And, you know, (laughs) I know we're not alone. Let me tell you, I lived in Shanghai, China. Uh I left there in 2018. And it was fantastic, not only because of the integration of Portuguese food and culture there, which was so amazing to be a part of, you know, historically, we could go on about that, how that happened. But I so often said, like, oh, my God, my mom could be Chinese. Or, oh, my God. They're just like us, you know, the concept of cultural pride and saving face. So, yeah, I just love the topic. Awesome. (laughs) So we're going to have to delve right in, aren't we? We we are. are. I mean, go ahead. No, I was just saying, again, this is a conversation we just had, you know, not too long ago of saying how, how are different people handling what we're going through? And is there a difference? Is there a difference between one American family, you know, example, how are they handling the pandemic versus how a Portuguese home is handling it and all of that. But with that, each household, I think right now we're all handling it very much the same. It's almost like the, the, the natural, um, equalator across the board like we're all going through the same thing but we're all handling it a little differently yes managing it differently for sure and I loved your meme that you passed around because 
with the group of online psychologists and therapists that I'm a part of, we passed around something very similar too that said, you know, it was kind of funny, but it was so poignant. It was like our our patients and clients that we see with anxiety disorders, they're mm. actually managing pretty well because they've been preparing for this their whole life. <laughs> <laughs> they knew it was going to be bad one day. They just knew it. They did. They've done yeah. that. And, you know, that meme is just like what we're talking about now with our culture. And in general, especially, you know, those of us with backgrounds from the Azores, we don't realize it, but a lot of the, the pressure that we got growing up and some of the family communication and dynamic styles, all of that stems from this really this constant level of heightened anxiety and hypervigilance that's always playing in the background. Yeah. And so in a way, yes, our Portuguese moms have prepared us for this. We've been we've been working towards this our whole life. Well, you know, the, the meme for those that have not seen it, and you probably have, it starts off with says, Portuguese moms have been training us for this moment our whole lives. And underneath it says, stay home, wash your hands, stay away from that one, don't touch <laughs> anything, save your money eat at home and clean mm-hmm. the house. Mm-hmm. So it's perfect. It is so perfect. Right. It is. And it's kind of like, you know, we always say that Portuguese mothers in particular, in particular women are always uh, expecting the worst. Everything is a tragedy. Everything is the, the end of the world. And now it's kind of, they're kind of like, see, I told you this is <laughs> happening, but to the, to, there's a couple of things in that, that I really would love to to delve into, which is, uh, Dr. Susie, you mentioned the anxiety part of it, right? So yes. do people recognize it as anxiety or is this, I mean, I can't imagine that our mothers and grandmothers and great grandmothers recognize this as a, as a disorder of any sort. This, this was just how you lived life. You had to be prepared all the time for the worst, right? But yes. then as our, as their children or, or grandchildren, now that we're here in America, it can be very frustrating for the, for the kids. Right. And then also, especially for the daughters, because the daughters are the ones that are made to clean and stay home and, you know, don't talk to that one and all that stuff. The boys have a little bit more leniency. So how, how have you seen people, or maybe I was going to say, uh, you know, address it, or maybe they're just not addressing it. And that's where the frustration comes from. Yeah. yeah you know, this is really important. And this right here is an excellent first dive into this. So no, they don't know what the label is. They don't know it's anxiety. Culturally, we just, that's not something we talk about or we're familiar with. Right. We are excellent. We are excellent at managing these tough situations. But again, it's because we've been raised by parents and grandparents who are in that constant state of hypervigilance, hyper-awareness. And historically that stems from, and we're not the only culture that um, that shares this, unfortunately, but it shares, it comes from a number of historical and geographical reasons. It's for those, and I I talk to a lot of people who are second generation, and they don't quite realize a a lot of what led to the immigration here because of Salazar and and the difficulties that their grandparents were experiencing. So you grew up in those times where there was kind of this cultural paranoia, right? But but Mm -hmm. the reason you did have to be very careful 
and financially things were hard. And for those from the Azores, you're you're living under constant stress of natural disaster on top of it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, gonna blow up. Is there gonna be an earthquake? So having all of those things to worry about, and then the Catholicism on top of it is a way to relate, but it ends up being this very black and white way to relate. It's very fear-driven. It's nice because it gives kind of this external framework of how to manage, you know, day-to-day living, how to manage being a good person and a good citizen. But as we all know, and we laugh about, it's also a way to kind of instill fear too in children mm-hmm. and, and how, you know, how we should expect others to treat us and so forth. It just leads to this grand, um, catastrophizing that we recognize our, our mothers and our grandmothers doing. And so it's led to this preparedness, right? This constant preparedness. And we have to be careful. We have, you know, don't eat out. You could get sick or it's not mm-hmm. the worst case scenario. It's not really beef. You're eating some of those things. You're going to catch infection. And <laughs> I, I love to laugh about is, you know, like don't go out with your hair wet and cover your ears with a scarf or you're going to get an infection. And we all know that's hilarious. That's just not how that happens. <laughs> But that's that, that stems from that constant, you know, constant fear and constant level of anxiety. And what that results in now for those of us living here in a safer, more developed, you know, country, although the Azores and Portugal are pretty fantastic now, we've come a long way, but yes. it's led to health issues such as, you know, being overweight, obesity, because heightened levels of anxiety does contribute to that because of cortisol levels. It has led to a lot of issues of undiagnosed depression, mm-hmm. you know, and it kind of goes both ways. You could have the genetic passing down of this anxiety, or of course, just when, if, even if it's not genetic, when you're brought up with it, it absolutely impacts your attachment. And that's one of the biggest issues we're dealing with is, you know, growing up as a child with a parent like that. And we could talk a little bit more about attachment if you want. Those, those early years where you form that safe connection and you feel consistent love and you know that when you need something, you will consistently receive it from your parent. And that's hard to that's hard to have when you have a parent who's struggling with a lot of things, you know. And so that impacts your relationships as an adult, too. It impacts you as an employee, as a spouse or partner, as a friend. And so that's just something that we're starting to look into now within our culture because we we have not put a label to it, clinically speaking, because there's a lot of shame mm-hmm. and community with it. That's the shame thing about like getting help or recognizing that you have a problem is a big one because I feel like, and, and for those of you who don't know, um, I'm third generation, right? So I'm very much... Going to, going to a therapist is like not a big deal. Like I honestly feel like everybody should have a therapist, like they have a general practitioner, but you still have a lot of people that it's very taboo. It's very, oh, that's only for crazy people. So how would you recommend the, the children or grandchildren deal with it? And is there, is there convincing your parent or grandparent to go seek help? You know, because I mean, we've had, I've had those conversations with, you know, some of the older generation and it's like, I don't need help. Those, I, I'm not a crazy person. You know, I know what the problem is. I just, and, the, and then it's almost like a denial, right? Like I, there's not a problem. I know what I need to do. I just need to keep going. I just need to clean. I just need to whatever. So it's almost like a denial. So how do you kind of balance that? Like, how do you but get help 
deal with it. You know, I have to, I, can I say something? I remember my grandmother, my mother talking about not being able to like, let's say if there's something that's bothering them, you can, you know, you can't really tell anyone cause you couldn't tell anyone what's really like your, your secrets kind of thing. Secrets were a big thing. Yes. And the only place that you could tell someone was a priest. Yes. Because confessional was also therapy. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And so they did not see going to a therapist or someone else like, oh, they could tell people, but you could tell a priest because that's just in the confines of a confessional box. Yes. So I, I think the thing was, is that that was their only out mm. to tell anyone and still feel like there's nothing wrong with me. I'm telling my priest. Yeah. But then, then the, the advice is just more laden with Catholic guilt, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm not saying that that was the right way to go, but I'm saying that was their mentality of yeah. what they used instead, even True. though. Their approach to having go to a priest and say it, you know, you're going to have to say 10 Hail Marys for the rest of the week and this and that. And, you know, you've got to look the other way and, oh, you can't be this way, which, you know, obviously they have no clue whatsoever that that's not their, their thing. But yeah, but that was their mentality. Their mentality for speaking or to getting it out of their chest was in that confessional box. Yes, yes. And yes, I always kind of say that's like, oh, there's only two people who can, you can tell. It's Zush and the priest, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there, that's it. You're limited to those two. And I've, I've often reflected on the one priest that I knew growing up in the little town of Dos Palos, California. And he was, he was an American and he was uh, pretty well educated and progressive. And I thought, what a tremendous burden he must have carried to kind of have to find a balance between his culture and ours, listening to so much Portuguese confession that, you know, like, is is this a cultural norm? Do I even report this stuff maybe to, you know, DSHS? Like, where does this cross the line? But when you hear so much of it, I'm sure at some point he tried to balance it as a, a cultural norm. But back to your one question about how how do we get people into therapy and how do we convince our elders to do it? And, you know, regardless of culture and regardless of age, we can only work on ourselves and we can never force anyone else into therapy unless they want it. And so, you know, in that way, this is very normative. This is very typical and normal to have elders in some way, but really culturally what's a little different is what you've mentioned is this whole shame aspect and our mm-hmm. elders our, our parents and grandparents they don't even want to hear about if you're going to therapy <laughs> like don't tell me this nonsense you know kind of business you're, you're just wasting your money and that has to do with saving face and saving face and pride and family secrets are so huge in our culture And for those particularly from the Azores, but even those from the smaller villages in the mainland is, you know, if we can step back and think about our parents and grandparents, and when you're raised in a little community like that, 
there isn't a lot going on. There isn't much new coming in. You know, you don't have like the latest shows coming through to talk about. You don't have, there isn't much to talk about except each other. It's different now, right? But especially then for our parents and grandparents, there wasn't a lot of change in growth. There weren't people, you know, going off and getting their degrees and amazing jobs. And then you, you had something else to talk about. We only have each other to talk about. Mm-hmm. When you live with that kind of limitation, together with that kind of what I called earlier, that cultural paranoia that you get from living, you know, like, am I going to have enough resources? Is the regime going to accuse our family of something we didn't do? Is there going to be an earthquake that happens and topples my house? This constant fear together with this saving face and family secrets business, you just, you, your, your grandparents and parents are almost certainly 80% set up and wired and, and truly wired, you know, neurologically speaking, to really resist therapy. So all you can do, and I've had this conversation with Portuguese women, is you need, you need to stop reaching out and hoping that your mom is going to say something different to you. It's more mm-hmm. doing the work so that we either make the decision, we're not going to put ourselves out there to keep getting told those negative things, or we have new tools in our tool bag you know, through our appointments with a therapist and a psychologist so that our, we can implement these new tools so we can cope better and shed these heavy layers of guilt and shame and fear and all of that other stuff. So we can actually get to the point where we can kind of laugh it off a little bit and it doesn't mm-hmm. take that wound even more. So essentially stop trying to change your mom or your grandmother it's really all about how we react to it or how we cope with it. Absolutely. It's, it's yeah. about filling our tool bag and how we cope. And, the, you know, this is a heavy topic that I'm about to bring up. So definitely not something we can address in, <laughs> in the rest of our time together. But what we do know from research is that, so in the field of mental health, when we talk about formal diagnoses, there are things that people are familiar with, labels that we're familiar with, like, you know, anxiety, depression, that kind of thing. But um, there's also something that's called personality disorders. And yes, and personality disorders, the more it's studied in, you know, in Western culture, in mainstream culture, the more we are certain that it has to do with, again, those early relationships, attachment, you know, how secure you were, in your attachment to the parent and how that affects you as an adult later on in life. Are you secure? Are you anxious? Are you ambivalent about things? And so we know now through research, and we're just touching the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more to be done. But our population, our parents and our grandparents are experiencing a very disproportionate, a very high number or level of personality disorders. And what we do know is those, a couple of those personality disorders that tend to be really prevalent in our culture are dang near impossible to treat. (laughs) And so when you think about dealing with a parent in their 50s, 60s, or 70s who has that, it's just not going to change. Even if they want it, it would be very hard to change. And so really it is about us and how we manage that and how we get to a really healthy, happy place. Can you 
explain a little bit more when you say personality disorder? Because I think when people hear that, they immediately think multiple personalities. And so now they're thinking, oh my gosh, does my mom have multiple personalities? What does that mean? So can you explain a little bit more uh, and maybe what some of the uh, is symptoms the right word or yeah. behaviors that are exhibited in a personality disorder? Yes, absolutely. So I'm so glad you brought that up. So it, it, it absolutely has nothing to do with multiple personalities. There are some personality disorders in particular that are more prevalent in Portuguese society, but other cultures, you know, American culture has, has them as well. But the ones that are more prevalent, again, have to do with that early relationship with their parents. And it, obsessive compulsive is one of them. That's different than obsessive compulsive disorder. But obsessive um, compulsive personality is somebody who just kind of perseverates and overthinks things and kind of the things that we kind of laugh or giggle a little bit, but to an extreme version, right? Like the excessive cleaning and the worrying. And if I don't do this, this bad thing will happen. So everyone, you know, we think of personality disorders kind of on a spectrum, a range. We all to function well, have a little bit of those, but it becomes a personality disorder when you are too far over, right? Like it's not functional and helpful anymore because really hygiene is a good practice, is it not? And, and being selective of who we associate with, good, safe practice. But when you live in that constant state of that, it's gone too far, then it becomes a personality disorder. So obsessive compulsive is probably the easiest one to explain. The other one is uh, that's very prevalent in our society is borderline personality disorder. And this is extremely complex. And we can provide links to if we need to later on for listeners to kind of look at some of the, of the characteristics of this. But borderline personality disorder, they're probably going to change the name of that. It's not the best name for that particular personality disorder. But, you know, it's somebody who struggles with finding a true solid identity for themselves. So they do things as an adult because they're constantly trying to find who they are and identify who they are because of that very weak or unstable early development, you know? So sometimes extreme versions of this will be people who who maybe change their name or they change jobs a lot, but not like in the same field, just like drastically. I'm going to be a nurse one day and then I'm going to be, you know, a, termite inspector the next day they're just struggling so hard to find who they are and they have one of the characteristics of this is they have these super intense feelings and so when you start a new friendship and if you have borderline personality disorder oh my goodness that friendship is so intense you're talking all the time you kind of idealize that person that person's amazing they're so smart they're the best cook they're this they're that they're beautiful they're the best friend in the whole world And because of this instability that's always underlying, they have a lot of hot and cold relationships. So all of a sudden the the boyfriend or the friend or the girlfriend who was super amazing and fantastic and almost a saint is now the demon and like the worst person in the world and can't trust them, you know, so it's that very black and white thinking and, and instability with relationships. This can also lead to substance abuse or other risk-taking behaviors. So that's part of a bigger conversation about you know, alcoholism and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. And then 
other personality that a uh, disorder that's fairly prevalent in our culture is histrionic personality disorder. And it's somewhat related to borderline personality disorder. Someone who's histrionic is uh, just as the, the name kind of implies, they're dramatic. And when they walk in the room, all eyes should be on them. And, um, <laughs> you know, and they need to be the center of attention. And I, it reminds me of when I was a little girl, I always think of this in, in my head, uh, you know, we we're going to mass and this one Portuguese older lady came up. She was so upset. I I bought this brand new fur coat, and I even went to you know Misa late. I went to I went to mass ten minutes late, and I went all the way up to the front, and nobody complimented my coat. And I, oh my god! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I we so that's not just called being a diva. There's actually a name for that. When it's consistent <laughs> and it's pervasive and it impacts your daily functioning, there's a name for it. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, you know, I, I have to say, I know I'm older than all of you because uh, I'm almost reaching the big six zero, And my, you know, of course, my, my parents, my grandparents, they've all passed. So, of course, you're, you're saying a lot of these different little things. And <laughs> the one thing that stuck out to me a lot was my with my mom as well as my grandmother was the type of thing where they worried a lot it was Mm -hmm. a constant worry yeah where my mom uh more so even than my grandmother would worry constantly about everything and even if it it was no one in our family she was still worried about someone else's family because she heard this and that so it was a constant so if there wasn't anything to worry about in our family, she'd be worrying about, <laughs> she, would find, she would find something to worry about, yes. you know, somewhere else. So I grew up with my mom always worrying and that drove me nuts. And I, I can honestly say this, I've, I've had this conversation with my sisters and because of course we see, you know, how our grandparents were and our parents were. And there are some things we, we want to continue and be like, but I, there are things that I didn't like that I don't want to, I almost want to like break the cycle and not do with my children. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the big worrying part was a big thing of me not like, yeah, I can be concerned and all that, but I'm not going to be consumed by worry. Yes. So it was, it's almost like you really need to kind of like stop, like make an, an actual conscious effort to say, this is going to stop here and I'm not going to move this on to my daughters. Mm-hmm. So in growing up, I always, you know, didn't like that. Having my three daughters, I have two older sisters. I have two older sisters that worry, especially one that worries about everything. She has continued where my mom left off. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's it's carried on. So she worries about me, my children, my granddaughter, her children, her her neighbor, her next, it just goes on and on and on. And so with all of this happening now, I find myself worrying. Mm. The isolation doesn't help either. 
Right. right. But it was all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm worried. I'm worried about my children. I'm worried about my granddaughter. I'm worried about, I'm worried about, and I, I've come to that thing of like, oh my God, I don't want to, I don't want to be that hyper worrier that I've always said, mom, like I'd always put my mom like enough, like you're not going to change anything by worrying. And I ate those words this weekend. I ate them and it was a swallow that was really tough for me to face that I was over worried about everything and everything is out of my control. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It was almost like a bitter pill that I swallowed and it was like, Oh my God, maybe I, I'm more like my mother than I want to say I am. Mm-hmm. Does that- it was like, oh shit! I don't want to worry. If I put that unknowingly on my daughters, like when do we break this cycle? That's mm-hmm. that's the thing for you know. And I'm I'm being very honest here. This is it is all about breaking the cycle, and I I see it. I can I I know. There are a lot of wonderful, amazing things about our culture, the way that we love, the way that we stand by, the way that we're so strong in so many different ways in our feelings and our actions and all of that stuff. But there are certain little things that we have to like break the cycle. Well, first, I think it's admirable that you recognize it and break the cycle. So that's, the, I think, the first huge step. But I also, you think it's going to take some time, you know, I mean, it's, it's baby steps. So don't, don't be too hard on yourself, Maria, because it's, you know, this didn't, the disorder doesn't happen overnight or the, you know, the worrying and all that doesn't happen overnight. And so it'll take some work, you know, and I'm sure your, your daughter's just inherent, like it's part of our DNA at that point. Right. Or it's, it's, or maybe Dr. Susie, you can clarify whether or not these kinds of things are DNA or, or inherited or things like that but I think you're already doing amazingly yes. simply for the fact that you've recognized it and you're working towards it. I mean, if we, you know, I mean, these are unique times. I mean, yeah. think about if you had not, if you weren't holed up at home, you probably wouldn't have, have, uh, I don't want to use the word relapsed, but that's the only word no, I can think of right now. But you know, there's circumstances that will bring out these kinds of things. And I can't help but wonder because my, my solution oriented brain just goes towards, okay, well, how do you fix this or how do you treat it? Or how do you help yourself? And, um, not, you know, there's all, there's therapy. Maybe not everybody can afford therapy. Not everybody wants to go on a a medication, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And people have joked about, oh, there needs to be a Portuguese support group, but there might need to be. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, where people like us get together in a confidential setting yeah. and it could be on zoom and it has to be confidential. You can't, cause a whole other topic we have to talk about some other day is gossiping and you know, oh, yeah. all that kind of stuff. You can't take, I mean, if you have this, this circle of trust, if you will, in, in a support group, you can't take people's stories and go, Oh my God, did you hear it? Or did you know that so-and-so da, 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 da? you can't do that because you're violating people's trust. So, I mean, yeah. I don't even know if there are Portuguese support groups out there, but I feel like there might be a need for one or a few. <laughs> Absolutely. There would be a need. And I think by having someone who's trained in, and skilled in this, 
they can set up the rules and, and the yes. parameters around the group and really coach, you know, having someone who's really skilled can kind of coach to make sure that that continually happens and get people to a level where they're equally vulnerable. Because the, the good thing about a group is it kind of holds its own secrets once you get the shared vulnerability. If somebody is not willing to be as vulnerable as the others, then they're probably the one who's not going to, one, benefit from the group and might be more likely to go out and gossip. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why you really need someone to do this. But there is, as far as I know, there is not a Portuguese support group. It absolutely can happen. I know I do things over Zoom all the time as far as therapy goes because it's a way to connect us, you know, throughout the world. So that would absolutely be beneficial. But Maria, I wanted to address like one very important thing that you said, which should be applauded, is that you were able to stop and recognize that you had kind of relapsed. And so when we, what we know is that there's a very specific type of therapy that works for this anxiety, even this very deep level of cultural anxiety, right? And it can be genetic and be, it can be passed down for sure. And there, you know, we know the therapy works, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to slip from time to time, especially given the circumstances that we're under. And routine and structure is so important to building resilience. And a lot of us have lost our routine and structure. Yeah. And so I want you to know, and, and for everyone else to recognize too, that on these national groups that I'm on of professionals, people who've gone to college for 12 years to help others conquer. Every day, people are being vulnerable with each other, professionals, licensed professionals like myself saying, I am worried. I couldn't sleep last night. I don't know about my business. I don't know about my family. I, I can't predict the future. So I feel things are out of control. So it's okay to recognize this. It's actually tremendous and a really positive thing when you can stop, recognize and label it for what it, for what it is, that kind of thing you know, thinking. So that's amazing. And, and to be applauded, because that's what that's the goal. It's not that we're fixed permanently, but we can right. stop label. Oh. oh, definitely. I mean, I don't think I think it's a constant. Um, yeah, we're never fixed. There's no, no such. There's no such thing. No. <laughs> there's always something to work on. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, and, go ahead, Dr. Susan. Go ahead. I was just going to say in talking about this, you know, worry, this excessive worry that, for instance, where you're talking about with your family and generationally experiencing, that can lead to some of the, the things that we kind of know as a culture that we do excessively, like judging others, mm-hmm. cutting family members off who, you know, <laughs> psychologically we view as some kind of a, a threat to our you know, saving face or family pride or secrets or whatever. And so that's part of a bigger conversation. But just to know that those behaviors are, are bigger systemic symptoms of this underlying worry. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The, yeah. Cutting, the cutting of family members off. Oh my gosh. That, that episode is going to be amazing. <laughs> um, I, you're right, because I think everyone, everyone, I don't care what family, there's something like that going on. Sure. Whether it's their family member or a good friend, all of a sudden, you know, is, the, and we all know this. We all know this within our own family. 
So I think that's a, that's an automatic one. Yes. And the big one that a lot of us don't want to talk about anger, anger management. Mm -hmm. Growing up, I had a family member who I thought was just emotionally out of control. You know, like I didn't know any better. And I just thought this was like the angriest person on the planet. And it wasn't until, you know, because even though you go to school and you practice this with others, it doesn't mean you can immediately apply these this lens to your own family, right? And it wasn't until I was in my late 30s when I saw that family member get super angry about having to use the phone. And then I was able to like put my professional lens on and go, oh my goodness, that is anxiety. Mm. It's not anger management per se. I mean, the anger is there, but now I understand it was an underlying anxiety. And anxiety, this worry, this anxiety can also lead to the serious issue of anger management and maybe not healthy child rearing practices and not healthy couple communicating practices because when you are so hypervigilant and you know constantly on edge like this, you don't have the ability to be level-headed in the way you react. And so you fly off the handle a lot. So how would you, uh, there's two things I wanted to get your thoughts on Dr. Suzo. First one, as I was, you know, we're having this conversation, I'm thinking it's so, it's so important. And when you're thinking about how to react to somebody to understand where they're coming from and, mm-hmm. and letting that, you know, because I, it's kind of like, you know, mean people aren't, aren't born. They're, they're taught. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of the same thing where like, you know, people aren't born or maybe I, I guess sometimes they are if they're truly genetic disorders, but understanding that, you know, our parents or grandparents went through the uh, depression and came from a, an oppressive regime. And so that's why they save everything. And if they don't get their taxes in, they, they literally think the IRS is going to come arrest them. And, you know, the relationship they had with their mother wasn't a loving one. And so maybe that's why they're kind of cold. So just having a better perspective and understanding where they're coming from, um, at least in my experience has really helped me dismiss, I guess, and not take on the burden of why, why are they acting this way with me? What did I do wrong? It's like, no, no, no. That's just how they are because of their history. Right. And, yep. and, and their unfortunate circumstances in many ways. So, you know, how, I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about how people can better understand that aspect of, of the people in their lives. But then secondly, you know, you're talking about anger management and, you know, in, in many cases, it might be something that we can just like, okay, you know, when you, when you're like that, I'm just going to walk away and not deal with it. But in mm-hmm. cases where you truly feel somebody needs to get help or take an anger management, you know, therapy session, but you know, they might be elderly, they're your parent. And how do you convince them or how do you talk to them about that and say, I think this is something that is going to improve your life, right? (laughs) Not just make our lives better by having to not deal with your anger anymore, but it's going to make you feel better and not so wound up and, and anxious about things. How do you bring that up? So that's a really difficult conversation to have. And first, it should not be brought up in the heat of the moment. It shouldn't be brought up when the person's angry or even immediately following an event or an episode. It needs to have, it needs to be very planned. (laughs) So very planful on the part of the 
the child or the you know grandchild that's going to bring it up. It needs to take place somewhere where both feel safe. You know, you don't want to take the parent or the grandparent to a restaurant where they already feel anxious about what am I going to eat? Why did you bring me here? So somewhere where you feel safe, you both do and comfortable. And it needs to be kind of brought up in the sandwich method. So, you know, saying something positive first, very delicately, then putting in the meat part, which is the, I'm really worried and I, I, I want to bring up this topic and then closing it up with the positive again. So, and it could be like, you know, for, for your aunties or for like, yeah, you know, I just love our time together. You've taught me so much and I love the stories you tell me and when we cook together but I really worry about your health and your heart and your happiness because sometimes I notice that, and you just, you know, no judgment, just observation, not, not, um, you get people scared and people are afraid of you and you scream, just, just describe the observation of what you see, the characteristics and physical appearance of this behavior, the, the angry behavior. And I have been working really hard to find a way to manage it for myself. And I would love to share that with you because I love you so much. Um, so you take away the accusation and you take away the hurt feelings and you just describe what you see and you make it a little bit about you, <laughs> not about them. And that's probably the best approach. It doesn't mean you're not going to get though that feedback that's, um, why do you always have to bring up the, you know, the negative things? All I do is give, 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 and you don't ever appreciate. It doesn't mean you're not going to get that. You need to be prepared for that. But you've planted a seed that at least is going to get somebody thinking. They may not talk to you for a day or two. <laughs> <laughs> but they're, yeah. thinking, they're thinking. And just knowing that and being comfortable with, you may never hear anything about it from them. And you just don't push it. and. It doesn't mean they don't love you. It doesn't mean that they've disrespected you or negated what you said. They just don't understand. This is terminology and concepts that are very contrary to uh, the Azorian version of Catholicism. It's very contrary to the cultural concept of pride. And you just pull yourself up by your boots and you work hard. You know, it's contrary to praying it away, kind of like if you pray, things will get better. And sometimes if things aren't better, does that mean I didn't pray well enough or hard enough? You know, so there's a lot of stuff going on there, but at least you've planted the seed. Yeah. And then you model, you model how you manage things and they will notice, they will notice how you, you know, you model, okay, I'm getting frustrated. So I'm just going to go for a really quick walk around the cul-de-sac and then I'll be back. And they're going to go, hmm, okay, shoot, that's a little different what she did. But I noticed she came back really calmly. That's a great point. That's a really great point. And there's just to know, <laughs> again, it's about our tool bag and our, how we cope with it. That it doesn't mean that all of our mothers and all of our grandmothers are personality disordered. Not at all. It's just, you know, it's a high percentage in our culture. But to just know that some people, when you've spent decades this constant state of worry or judgment or whatever it might be that you almost get very comfortable in it it feels like home and when you know when you have someone who's maybe recommending that things be different that sounds scary because mm -hmm. if you pause and think 
I'm sure we all can think of maybe a holiday where things were going really well and the family was over and everybody was getting along and somebody seemed to stir something up unnecessarily. Like things were going so well. Why do they say that? And some people just feel so comfortable in that. And actually there's a, you know, a biophysiological reason for that, that when you're not constantly pulling on your adrenal glands because (laughs) you're you're so used to your cortisol surging with anxiety and anger that you kind of don't realize it, but subconsciously you stir things up, you create chaos because that's what you're comfortable with. Yeah. That makes, uh, yeah, it's, it's, gosh, you know, it's, it's weird. It's a weird concept to think that someone is comfortable or that's their comfortable space being in the middle of, of an argument or drama. But when you talk about the physical response of it, it's almost like that's their high yeah. because that's the high they've always known. They don't know a positive high, if you will. Yep. Right. Because yeah, I mean, in our, in our family too, we, we, I can think of, you know, some of the best memories I have are our family get togethers. But then I also think, can I think, yeah, there was probably arguments that 95% of our family gatherings, you know? So yeah, yeah that makes so much sense. And you know, another tip, or something that might be helpful is we don't really have a strong social emotional vernacular or vocabulary, you know, in, in, in Portuguese that our family is used to. And so how we how we start to develop healthier coping skills in children is the same thing we kind of want to do for our elders who, you know, need help with this too. And when I always say stop, and identify what you're feeling and put a label to it. We do that with little ones. You know, we want to do that with kids because that's the healthy thing to do. It, it it expands and builds their social emotional vocabulary. Like I can see that your face is turning red. I think you're getting angry about this. So let's just take a break and not play with that toy right now and play with something else. You know, that is a very healthy thing to do with young children. It identifies it, you know, get them to stop recognize it and identify and label. And so they start to build like, oh, that's anger. And mm-hmm. so our our elders don't really have a really strong vocabulary either when it comes to that, to be able to stop and put a name on it. And they just don't know. They might fly off the handle. One thing that a lot of women in our culture do is something that we call, uh, they become somatic. And soma is a Greek word for body. And so in particular, and and let me know if you recognize this, but a lot of women tend to become somatic. They have, instead of saying, I feel afraid, I feel worried, I'm upset, I'm angry, whatever it might be, they get headaches, they get stomach aches, they have constant health problems, it hurts. It's always something going on with the health. Doris, this. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I, I have a family member that I know if we have a, a party that's yeah. going to be set up because of whatever reason something's going on in her life, all of a sudden I can't make the party. I have a headache or mm-hmm. I can't make the party because my stomach is off. Yeah. Well, that manifests because that's easier to deal with a headache and say you have a stomach ache instead of I don't want to go to your party because so-and-so is going to be at that party and I don't want to see her face. Yeah. I mean, 
That's <laughs> that's literally what they're saying. But instead of just being honest enough to say, you know, I, I'm mad at her because she did this and this and this, it's easier for her to say, I have a stomach ache and I'm not coming. And she it, may you know, generally truly have a stomach ache. Like and she does, yes, yeah. because she will get that stomach ache to say, I'm not lying. I really have a stomach ache. Mm-hmm. But for all intents and purposes, it's because she doesn't want to face whoever is at this party that she hasn't been talking to for the past week because she pissed her off in some way. Yeah. Yes. I, I, do you know, you're saying these things and I'm going, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I see that a lot. But then that also, that also feeds us a cycle of, and we, we, we've reached our hours. So we, we do have to wrap up, but it, it feeds the cycle of like, okay, so they they have these physical symptoms Oh my God, something must be wrong with me. They go to the doctor. The doctor's like, listen, it's just, it's stress induced. You need to like find a way to relax. And then it's like, okay, but the doctors know what they're talking about. There's really something wrong with me and no one's going to figure it out. And then they're even more stressed about that. And so then they have more pains. It's like this vicious circle, you know, because they just can't grasp the, the idea that their mental state is causing them physical pain. You know, yes. in lots of different ways. It could be their back. It could be their shoulders. It could be their whatever, right? But mm-hmm. their body is manifesting the pain the, of yep. their stress. Yeah. Um, and that's why we have to do the very important work of building, which is what I've been working on, building cultural con- um like an awareness and responsivity on behalf of medical providers and and mental health providers. We have to be culturally responsive and understand the cultures that we support in the communities and where our practices are. Yeah. Well, again, we could have, we literally could go all day talking about this, but we're just going to have to break this up. We're going to have to break this up into episodes. And I think this is a great first episode when we touched on some really key things. So to our listeners, I hope that you will give us your feedback. Was this helpful for you? What else would you like us to talk about? If you want a Portuguese support group, you know, what do you think that should look like? And not to put any pressure, but Dr. Souza, if you'd like to get one started or have colleagues, or if there are any other psychologists out there that feel inclined to get one started, I mean, I think there's room for a lot of them because there's a lot yeah, of us yeah. out there, right? Yeah. So we can't all be in one. And not only that, but for the people who have sent us lists, we we got them. Yes. We, um, and we will absolutely touch upon these the questions that you have uh, little by little. But I think once we touch the, the big scope of things, those little questions or the questions that you might have kind of get answered. In in that. That's what we're hoping for. Yep. And Dr. Sisa, thank you so much for your time. Your insights were very helpful and I hope everybody found them helpful and we'll we'll put your uh, do you have a website or how can people reach you if they have further questions or um, yeah. we can put that in the notes uh, yeah. so my email would be a good way um, Darlene Souza so D-A-R-L-E-N-E S-O-U-S-A not the Z <laughs> Child Mind Northwest Northwest is spelled out.com. Okay. And it was an absolute pleasure. I'm so happy to have been a part of this very, very necessary conversation uh, about how worry is a Portuguese national pastime. And 
<laughs> I would love to chat further with anyone who's interested about moving forward with a support group. I think that's absolutely a beautiful thing. And we're all at home and getting comfortable with the internet and mm-hmm. Zoom and other technologies. So maybe that will be the positive out of this pandemic is that we can move forward with an online group. That would be amazing. And I think you just named this episode worrying is a, as a Portuguese national pastime. Uh, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> well, thank you again. And, and I, we're going to have you on again because you are just so full of, of great insights. So uh, this is just the first of many. Yes. And thanks to all our listeners out there. If you haven't hit subscribe, please do so. And please share this episode with family and friends and get them to hit subscribe. If you can take a few minutes to write a review on iTunes that will help more uh, Portuguese Americans find us and, and join the conversation at our Portuguese table. And um, with that, ladies, we're going to say yes. até a próxima. Até a próxima, querida. Até a próxima. Okay. Ciao. Ciao. Ciao, ciao. Thanks again for listening to our Portuguese table podcast. If you haven't subscribed yet, you can do so on SoundCloud or iTunes. And all episodes can be found on our website at www.ourportuguesetable.com. You can also reach us at feedback at ourportuguesetable.com with comments, questions, or suggestions. Até a próxima!